0: Well, the life of Elisha is filled with some surprises. And we see these surprises very early on in his ministry. Now, you remember last week we talked about the fact that Elijah, the prophet of God, was Elisha's mentor. And when the Lord decided to take Elijah to heaven, he turned over the ministry. He anointed Elisha to be the one to carry on that prophetic role uh, preaching to the King of Israel and to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, and so we saw uh, last week Elijah get swept away by the chariot of fire, the whirlwind, and now elisha 's there to carry on that role and Tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk about what the Lord used Elijah to do, or what E-li- elisha what, what elisha 's ministry consisted of well, I mean what was he doing? during his time on the earth. What does a prophet do? We're going to see what the Lord uh, used Elisha to accomplish, and what the Lord was doing through Elisha the prophet. The first thing is this. God used Elisha to proclaim messages, to proclaim messages. That is the central role of a prophet that we see in the the Old Testament. They are to proclaim messages from God. You will often see them um, say... Thus says the Lord. They're speaking on behalf of God Himself to the people. So we we see this in 2 Kings chapter 3. So turn there with me, 2 Kings chapter 3. I'm going to show you how the Lord used Elisha to proclaim a message. 2 Kings chapter 3. There are three parts of this story in this chapter that I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see the national crisis The national crisis. It says there in verse 1, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. A little bit of background. Um, Ahab, who was Jehoram's father, was an evil, wicked king. He was married to, remember his wife's name? Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel gave Elijah fits uh, during Elijah's prophetic ministry. So now Elisha... Uh, Elijah's protege is dealing with Ahab's son, King Jehoram. It says there that he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father. So he was evil, but not as evil as Ahab. Or uh, he wasn't evil like his mother, it says. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, the worship of the false god, the pagan god Baal, which his father had made. So it seems as if... He was not as um, passionate a Baal worshiper as Ahab or Jezebel. Nevertheless, verse 3, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So he still was had some wickedness in his life um, and, and lived out that wickedness, the, the wickedness of Jeroboam, an earlier king of Israel. And he wasn't wholehearted, uh, in a wholehearted fashion devoted to the Lord. So look what happens in verse 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. Real quickly, uh, there's a stone that the Moabites wrote a lot of their history on. Misha was one of those that recorded history on that stone. That stone can actually be found in the Louvre in Paris, France. Pretty cool, right? Just a little connection to biblical history. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And used to pay the king of Israel, who was Ahab, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So it seems as if that Ahab had control over the Moabites and would force them to pay him tribute if they wanted his protection. Verse 6. Verse 5, but when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So now that Ahab's dead, I'm not going to pay him with any lambs or sheep. I'm not, I'm not going to pay up. I'm not going to pay tribute now that they've had a transition in leadership, which was quite common in this day. So King Jehoram, Ahab's son, went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. So he said, you're not going to pay me what you paid my father. We're going to come get you. Well, it sounds like the mafia, doesn't it? We're, we're going to come get you. Uh, then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now remember, Israel was the northern kingdom, Judah was the southern kingdom. The, the, the twelve tribes of Israel had divided and were in a, a really a civil war. They were two separate nations. But here, the northern kingdom says to the southern kingdom, Will you help us out to go get the Moabites? And so he goes to Jehoshaphat. Now, if you read about Jehoshaphat in different passages of the Bible, he had some really bright moments serving the Lord. He, he was a, a godly man to a great degree. And there's some wonderful stories, 2 Chronicles 20, some great stories about Jehoshaphat. So he goes to Jehoshaphat and says, will you go with me to get the king of Moab? He says in verse 7, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, and so we see here the the national crisis that they have. This nation that's not paying tribute, and they're about to go to war. Uh, and this this setting is the setting for them to need a message from God, because after the national crisis, we see a battle plan without guidance. A battle plan without guidance. Look what it says in verse eight. He said. Jehoshaphat, which way shall we go up? In other words, how are we going to attack the Moabites? Which which direction we want to, to, to go to attack that nation? And he answered, this is Jehoram answering, the way of the wilderness of Edom. So that's the battle plan. They're going to go through the wilderness of Edom. Now this is going to turn out to be a very bad decision. Because look what it says in verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And they made a circuit of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And so here's what happened they got lost. They decided to attack from the wilderness side instead of the north side, which would have been a better way to attack the Moabites. And during their trek through the wilderness, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Edom, they got lost and they couldn't find water and they were about to perish from thirst. Now, Swade, why was this such a bad plan? It's a, it was a bad plan because they did not get any guidance for the plan. Now, notice there, Jehoshaphat says, I'll help you. What are we going to do? And Jehoram sets the direction. Not God, but Jehoram, this wicked king, sets the direction. Now this is in direct contrast to how Jehoshaphat handled an earlier situation. Hold your place, but turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Verse 1. The Bible says three years passed without war between Aram, that's Syria, and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, there he is again, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? Same kind of deal. Will you help us? Just like Jehoram asked for his help, he's asking for his help. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to that battle? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. Same answer. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Now watch this. Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Do you see the difference between that and what happens over 2 Kings where he says, Yeah, I'll fight with you. What's the plan? Here in 1 Kings 22... He's, he's going to the Lord for his guidance. But over in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, he does not go to the Lord for guidance. And it gets him into all types of trouble. They are lost in the wilderness as an army and without water. The battle plan without guidance. So what happens? From that crisis comes a desperate desire to hear from God. Look what happens back in 2 Kings 3, verse 11. So they're lost. You ever been lost before? You ever been? I mean, just I mean, really lost. I remember when I went hunting with my dad one one morning, and and I knew that area we were hunting pretty well. But he, we walked in together, and he kind of left me at a, at a at a place where we knew there was some a good chance for me to see some deer. And so he he left me there, and he walked on to another stand, another location, and and I thought I knew exactly where I was. Well, the sun came up, and and. I hunted for a while, didn't see anything, so I was going to walk over to where Dad was, and I I followed the trail that I thought I knew, and I was not in the same part of the woods, and before I knew it, I was really, really lost. It's a really scary feeling. You start walking fast, because you you want to get out of there quickly, and that's where a lot of people get hurt when they're lost. They start walking fast. They trip or fall or twist their ankle or break a leg or whatever. I started walking fast, and I'd stop and call for Dad and walk for a while and call for Dad. Finally, uh, I remember one moment I called for, Dad! And I heard him say, what? (laughs) And he started whistling to me. And he'd whistle, and I'd walk, and I'd stop. And he'd whistle, and I'd walk, and and I found him that way. But it is a bad feeling, and that's what they were experiencing. They are lost in the wilderness. So look what Jehoshaphat says there in verse 11. Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Well, there's a good idea. Let's ask God. (laughs) I mean, it would have been a good idea at the very beginning, right? But here he says, let's get God to weigh in on our dilemma. So, uh, verse 11 says, And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So he's, he, he, he was Eli, Elijah's right-hand man. He was his protege, and he's here. We can trust that he, he'll give us a word from God just like Elijah did. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, went down to him. So we see here this desire, this desperate desire to hear from God. And God gives them a message through Elisha. Look what happens in the next verse. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. In other words, why do you want to come to me? And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha says, The Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. Were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat? Remember, he was a godly man. The king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you, but now bring me a minstrel. It came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So this is kind of funny. They, they bring Elisha. They're in the wilderness. They're lost. They're thirsty. They're about to die. They, they're close to the enemy, so war could happen at any moment. War was imminent. And they say, Elisha, give us a word from God. Give us some guidance. And Elisha says, bring me a musician. We're going to have a concert now, can you imagine the consternation of these kings? You know, here's this, here's this prophet telling them to wait. He needs some music first before he can tell them what God says. And it came about when the minstrel played some musical accompaniment that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So there's a connection here between music and, and God anointing him to give the message. That's probably an entirely different message. But the minstrel plays, the, the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha. He said, thus says the Lord. Here's God's message. Make this valley full of trenches, for thus says the Lord: You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. In other words, I'm going to give you water without any kind of rain. Just, just all of a sudden, the valley is going to fill up with water. It'll be a a miracle of God. Enough for your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all springs of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. It happened in the morning about the time of offering the sacrifice that behold, water came by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. Then the rest of that chapter, they have this fight with the Moabites and exactly what Elijah said was going to hap- or Elisha said was going to happen is what happened. And so God gives them this message that, that points them to Uh, provision that points them to victory in warfare and it's what they need to keep on keeping on and to survive and to win a victory in that day. And so we see Elisha here being used to proclaim messages from God to the people. Very important role for a prophet. Thus says the Lord and his prophetic message saved the armies of Israel and Judah and Edom. Again, they would have been a lot better off if they would have gone to the man of God before the, before the campaign uh, instead of in the middle when they are very lost. But we see that God used Elisha to proclaim these messages. Number two, how else did God use Elisha? God used Elisha to perform miracles. Not only to proclaim messages, but to perform miracles. Look what the Bible says there in chapter 3. Verse 16, they need water, and so God sends water miraculously. There's no rainfall, there's no natural explanation for the water in the valley, but it's just there. God provides the water. This is a provision miracle. If you're following along, you your notes, know a provision miracle. Then look in chapter 4, we'll see another provision miracle. Verse 1, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slave. So in ancient times, uh, to be a widow could be a very desperate situation because you had no way to provide for those that you were taking care of. And she had debts and could not pay the debts and was worried about her children uh, being taken away into slavery. So Elisha said to her in verse 2, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God. He said, Go, sell the oil. Pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This is a miracle provision. The woman, uh, the widow, has just a little bit of oil, but God says, "You just keep pouring. You just keep pouring in the, uh, these vessels, and and God will provide." So Elisha speaks to her and tells her what to do, and this miracle happens. It is a provision miracle to provide what she needs to care for her family. And then look down in chapter four, verses forty-two through forty-four. Now a man came from Bel-Shalishah and brought the man of God, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, "What What will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you at all? A little bit of bread, a lot of people, but the bread somehow feeds all the people. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Where else have we heard a story like that? Fishes and loaves, right? Jesus feeding the 5,000, then later on he feeds the 4,000. And remember, both times there was bread left over. It says here, there was bread left over. God gives us more than enough. So there's a, a provision miracle here. That's one of the miracles that God performed through Elisha. Another type of miracle is a conception miracle. A conception miracle. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to kind of go through these different stories, and I'm going to kind of tie it all together for you in a, in a moment. Chapter 4, verse 8 it came, There came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand, and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. So this woman noticed that Elisha comes through town quite often. She says, let's make him a place to to stay, a a comfortable place to stay when he comes through. This is the woman uh, extending hospitality. Verse 11. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. He said to her, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken uh, for to the king or to the captain of the army? In other words, you want me to tell you, give a message from you to the king of the country? She answered, I live among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Truly, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. When he called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, At this season, next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. The woman conceived and bore son at that season, the next year, as Elisha had said to her. This is a conception miracle. And we see this at different times throughout the Bible. Can someone else think of a, a conception miracle in the Bible? Virgin birth, we're going to talk about that Sunday. Be here Sunday. Can't wait for that sermon. What's another one? What Sarah and Abraham, right? They were advanced in years. And when she heard uh, the Lord say, you're going to have a, a son to Abraham, she laughed, right? She laughed. They named her son Isaac. Laughter. And so this is a conception miracle. God giving life when uh, it did not seem it was naturally possible, a conception miracle. This is just the power of God. Third, there's a resurrection miracle. So this woman has this son whom she cherishes dearly. And look what it says in verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came that, she, that he went out to his father to the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God in return. He said, Why would you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. Then she saddled a donkey, said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the Mount of God to Mount Carmel. Remember what happened at Mount Carmel? Anybody remember what Mount Carmel? What big event happened on Mount Carmel? Yeah, the fire fell. Elijah on the, on the mountain called for the fire of God. The fire fell. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is the Shunammite. By the way, we're we'll going to talk a lot more about Gehazi next week, so just get ready. Gehazi is going to get in some trouble. All right, we'll talk about Gehazi next week. He was Elisha's servant. He said, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? It is, well with the, is it well with the child? She answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, notice there, Gehazi pushed her away. We'll talk about that some more next week. The man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? In other words, I didn't ask for a son, so why would you give me a son and then let him die? She has real questions for God. Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. In other words, she said, You can let Gehazi do his thing, but I want you to come, Elisha. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad is not awakened. So Gehazi goes... Just like Elisha said, puts the staff on the boy's face, nothing happens. Could it be Gehazi has some character issues? Foreshadowing. Alright? When Elisha came into the house, how many of you know that God, God wants us to be clean and pure? And God works for, through pure vessels. As a matter of fact, hold your place. Or turn to 2 Timothy with me real quick. I'm getting into my message next week, but it'll be okay. You won't remember it next week. We can sing Timothy with me. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty. Paul writes. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. In other words, when you are clean, you are useful to the master, ready to be used by him. Now if I asked you tonight, raise your hand if you want to be used by God, I'm sure you would all raise your hand. But the the bigger question is this Are you usable? That's the bigger question. Do you have a clean heart? Are you walking with God? Just food for thought. That was extra. That wasn't even in my notes. That was extra, okay? Now turn back to 2 Kings, chapter 4. The woman's son is dead. Gehazi lays the staff on his face, doesn't work. Verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on his child, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. He stretched himself on him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times, and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite, the woman. So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Take up your son. And she went in, fell at his feet, bowed herself to the ground. She took up her son and went out. This is a resurrection miracle. Again, do you hear anything familiar here? Can you think of some other resurrection miracles in the Bible? Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. What, what about some of others? Jesus. Okay, what else? What's that? Jairus' daughter. Yes, right. There's several resurrection miracles throughout the gospel, something that you don't, that you don't hear much about. But, but Jesus performed resurrection. Some believe Jonah was a resurrection. Uh, some people believe he was preserved in the belly of the whale. Uh, some believe he died and when he said, arise and go to Nineveh the second time, it was a miracle of resurrection. So it was either a miracle, miracle of preservation or resurrection, but it was still a miracle. That's, just, that's for conjecture. You can, we'll settle that when we get to heaven. But, but we see here a resurrection miracle. God gives life to a a, a dead boy, and he uses Elisha as his instrument to perform this miracle. That's the third miracle we see. Then we see a purification miracle very quickly. Look in chapter 4, verse 38. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, by the way, the sons of the prophets were a school of, of up-and-coming prophets. This is like a, almost like a seminary. All right? They're training for the prophetic ministry. He said, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered them from it his lap full of wild gourds, came and sliced them into the pot of stew. They did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. As they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. He threw it or flour. And they, they, he threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat, then there was no harm in the pots. So this is a purification miracle similar to the, the water miracle we read about in Jericho when Elisha first came on the scene. The water was bitter, and God used him to, to cleanse the water for that area. A purification miracle. God purifies the stew. During a time of famine, this may not seem like a big deal, but remember there's a famine, and if you mess up a pot of stew by putting the wrong stuff in it, then that's serious business, right? And so he makes the stew edible, and people get fed well. So, God used Elisha to proclaim messages and to perform miracles. And we see here a provision miracle, a conception miracle, a resurrection miracle, a purification miracle. Pretty awesome stuff, isn't it? When Elisha was, was mightily used by God. Now, I want to make four statements give you four thoughts about miracles to kind of help us to frame this passage and understand it in the larger biblical context so we understand what miracles are all about and, and appreciate them in their proper sense. First thing is this. Miracles convey God's great power. There's just no question that one of the reasons God performs miracles is to convey, to demonstrate His great power. Look what it says in chapter 3. I love this verse. I read over it quickly because I wanted to come back and emphasize it. But when Elisha says on behalf of the Lord that there's going to be water with no rain that floods the valley, look what it says in verse 18. This is God speaking. This uh, this is Elisha speaking on behalf of God. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. Not a big deal. I'm going to give you Water. and There's going to be no natural explanation for it. It's going to be supernatural. I'm going to flood the valley so you can drink, your cattle can drink, your horses can drink. It's going to be supernatural, but it's not hard for God. We need to understand these are some really tremendous miracles. I mean, some, some incredible things are happening through Elisha's ministry, but don't think it was hard for God. God's not straining here. This is nothing for God. Listen, he simply spoke... And the universe leapt into existence, right? So how hard is it for him to get some water into the valley? How hard is it for him to to raise a boy from the dead or to cleanse some stew or to give an older lady who's beyond childbearing age a baby in her womb? It's not hard for God. God is all-powerful, omnipotent. He has all of that, and these miracles in the Old Testament through Elisha, the miracles in the New Testament—they point us to, remind us of God's great power. That's one of the reasons for miracles. Miracles ought to cause us to say, "Wow, what a mighty God!" Uh, hold, keeping that in mind, look in Matthew chapter eight with me. Matthew chapter eight. I want to show you ex- a New Testament example of this. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels, Matthew chapter eight, verse twenty-three. The Bible says, when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. Uh, our associate pastor, Frank, and his wife, and just got back from uh, Israel. They were able to go on a trip over there, and he was telling us about a staff meeting this week, and he said when they went across the Sea of Galilee, he said the waters were rough, so rough they almost canceled the, the boat's going out, but they let the boat go out. And he said it was very rough water, so it gave you a good appreciation for what it's like to be in the middle of that sea with the, with the waters churning in the, in the bigger waves. That's what's happening here. A great storm arose on the sea, so the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now look what happens in verse 27. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's the response God was looking for. (laughs) That's the point. What kind of a man is this? They They were in awe of his great power. Wow! I mean, he just got up and said, Stop blowing, wind. Die down, waves. And it happened. That's amazing power, is it not? If you don't think it is, next time there's a thunderstorm, walk outside and say, stop! See how that goes for you. All right. But that's the point. Miracles convey God's great power. They're there to to cause us to stand in awe at who He is and what He's done. Secondly, miracles can be national, corporate. By corporate, I mean a group of people. Or individual in scope. One thing I really appreciate about the miracles of the Bible. They can be national, they can be corporate, they can be individual in scope. Back in 2 Kings, we see all of those. We see a national miracle. He gives the three armies water. Right? That's a national miracle. We see a corporate miracle. There's a a group of prophets, a seminary of, of prophets, a school of prophets. And God provides for them uh, purified stew so they could eat. That's a, a corporate miracle, a smaller group. Not on a national scale, but on a, uh, a smaller group scale. But then miracles are individual in scope. He gives a, a widow woman provisions so she can pay her debt and not have to sell her children into slavery or or have her children taken away from her into slavery. And so we see here that national uh, miracles can be all of those, national, corporate, or individual in scope. In other words... Not only do miracles convey his power, they also convey his goodness. These things are all good things, aren't they? They help. He helps Israel and Judah and Edom. He helps this widow woman. I mean, she had real needs in her life. He met her needs miraculously, but he met her needs. The, the school of the prophets they had real needs he met their needs so miracles they they convey the great power of god but they're also good they good things happen they convey the goodness the kindness the mercy the grace of god when jesus was performing miracles what was happening sick people were getting healed right blind people were seeing deaf people were hearing lepers were were being healed of their awful disease, and we see him performing miracles, but these miracles were good things, kind things, merciful things, gracious things. They convey the goodness of God. We see that happen on different levels, a national level, a corporate level, or an individual level. Third, miracles challenge unbelief, but are insufficient to save. You have to chew on that one for a moment. Miracles challenge unbelief, but they are insufficient to save. Miracles are not God's plan to redeem a lost and dying world. Right? Find me a verse that says, "Go into all the nations and perform miracles." The verses I know about say, "Preach the gospel to all creation," "Go and make disciples of all the nations." Right? Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not miracles, the gospel is. So what's God's plan to save? Not miraculous things, but the gospel. Preaching the good news that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and sinners can believe in him and be saved. So let's look at this. Look in chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to show you how they challenge unbelief. 2 Kings chapter 4. Verse 16, Elisha says to the woman, At this season next year you will embrace a son. She said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. She she did not believe. And this miracle that was fulfilled in her life, she conceived a son, challenged her unbelief. Maybe I should trust what God says. (laughs) Maybe I should take what God says seriously from here on out. See what I'm saying? Miracles challenge her unbelief. Look what it says over in... Uh, Verses 42 and 43. There came a man from Bel-Shalishah, brought the man of God, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in the sack, and he said, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, what will I set this before a 100 men? In other words, this is not enough food for a 100 men. But then he passes out, and everyone's fed, and there's food left over. Same thing happened with the feeding of the 5,000 with the disciples. Remember, he said to his disciples, you feed them. And they said, Where, how are we going to feed them? All we have are these five loaves. This little boy has these two feet. How can we feed them? And he challenged their unbelief with a miracle to show them his greatness, his power. Now turn over to John chapter 2 with me. I want to show you another example of, these, of unbelief being challenged, but not being sufficient to save. A miracle not being sufficient to save. Look in John chapter 2, verse 23. By the way, this is probably going to raise some questions, so we'll have time for Q&A at the end, if I, if I leave enough time, which is questionable. John chapter 2, verse 23. The Bible says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem, context, he just performed the miracle of turning water into wine at Cana. Okay? He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So they had this belief in him, but it was not saving faith. The belief was based upon seeing his miracles. They say, we want to see some more of those. Because look what it says. It says, but, verse 24, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knew that some people were following him just to be wowed by his miracles. It was not saving faith, it was... It was a desire to see more miracles. And Jesus knew that desire to see miracles is not the same thing as saving faith. So these miracles challenge people's unbelief, but they don't save. No one's been saved by believing in miracles. Look over in John chapter 6 with me. The Bible says in John 6, 25, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? These were disciples talking to Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, seek me not because you saw signs, uh, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do? Watch this. What shall we do that we may see the work of, that we may work the works of God. So they're concerned about miracles here, right? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who ha- whom He has sent. So He's saying these miracles are not to get you to want to see more miracles. These miracles are to get you to, are to point you to the one who will save you. So they said to Him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? If you just show us another miracle, then we'll believe in you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, talking about himself, and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never Thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So you see the conflict going on here? People are like, miracles, miracles. And Jesus is saying, believe in me. You need a savior. You need to be forgiven. And they're saying, miracles, miracles, and saying, believe in me. The miracles challenge their unbelief, but did not bring them to saving faith. The gospel brings to saving faith. And this is further confirmed at the end of chapter 6 when thousands just walk away from jesus and say we're tired of following him no more miracles no more discipleship we're not going to follow him if he won't work miracles for us so miracles challenge unbelief but are insufficient to save so when you see a ministry on tv by some person and it's all miracle based then we ought to have question marks Right? Because Jesus kept pointing people back to belief in him. He kept going back to the gospel. They kept going back to miracles. He went to the gospel. Now, miracles have a place. And God uses them for certain reasons, but they are not his strategy to save a lost and dying world. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Miracles challenge unbelief but are insufficient to save. Which leads to the last thing about miracles. Let's kind of sum it up for you. Miracles display God's credentials to save and bear witness to the saving power of the gospel. Miracles is what miracles are all about. Miracles display God's credentials to save and bear witness to the saving power of the gospel. It's as if miracles say, yes, God can do that. And if God can do that, He can also do what He said He's going to do for you, which is save your soul. That's the role of miracles. Let me show you this. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Show you two passages that confirm this. Verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. He got up and went home, and the crowd saw this. They were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So Jesus saying, I'm going to perform this miracle to show you I have the power to forgive sins. If I can make him walk, it conveys that I'm God. If I'm God, I have the authority to say your sins are forgiven based upon your belief in me. And so this miracle was a a credential to show that he has saving power and saving intentions. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. There's a really clear passage on this. Hebrews chapter 2. Look in verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Talking about the gospel. If we, if we ignore the gospel message, if we don't listen to the message of Jesus, how are we going to escape God's wrath? The answer is you can't. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, the gospel spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So it's clear that as the gospel went forth in the days of Jesus and the apostles, God accompanied that preaching with miracles as testimony that his saving power was real. Let me say it like this. Miracles get folks' attention, but they don't save folks. And God will often use a miracle, listen, to get somebody's attention, but then they've got to respond to the gospel to be saved. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. I've been to India twice now, and my first time to India, we were speaking in some churches. It was customary when you had a, a guest preacher in your church, that after the, the teaching time was over, folks would line up to come talk to you, and they would talk to you about their life, what was going on, their life, and they would ask for prayer. And so it was customary. We would stand there at the front of the church after service and just lines of people, and just you would talk to them, and they'd tell you what their needs were, and you would pray or lay hands and pray over them. So we did a lot of that in India. And so we got to hear a lot of stories of Indian Christians. And almost everyone I heard, that told me their testimony, came to faith in Christ after either personally being healed of a disease in the name of Jesus or having a loved one healed of a disease in the name of Jesus or a sickness or a malady. I mean, almost to a person. They, some story goes something like this. My son had this, you know, this uh, lung ailment and struggling to breathe and he was young and we had no money for medicine and we could not get health care. And I met Pastor So-and-so, and he came to my house, and he prayed over my son in the name of Jesus Christ. My son was healed. Then what happened? They said to the pastor, tell me what you, tell me, share with me about this God. And so what would the pastor do? He would share, what? The gospel, and that person would receive the message and be saved. See how that works? Notice that when they said, okay, you got my attention now, give me another miracle. That's not what happened. You got my attention now. I want to hear about your God. There's a huge difference there. A huge difference. And and these these miracle-working ministries, which are really a bunch of sham, but that's a whole entirely different sermon. These miracle-working ministries on TV, it's all about the next miracle, isn't it? It seems like there's never a clear gospel presentation. The miracles are the thing, not the gospel. Miracles point to the gospel. Miracles are, in the Bible, called a sign. If I'm driving down to Jackson, I go down there all the time for different meetings and things, and I'm driving down to Jackson on Interstate 55, heading south, and I see a sign that says, 120 miles to Jackson. I don't get out and say, I'm here! I'm I'm ready for my meeting. That would look silly, standing on the side of the road, right? I know the sign's not the final destination. It's pointing me to the final destination. Miracles are signs. They're pointing beyond themselves to the gospel. Pointing beyond themselves to the one who saves the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ. So miracles are not the final deal. They always are pointing beyond themselves. Got that? So miracles display God's credentials to save and bear witness to the saving power of the gospel. I think that's a good way, a biblical way, a balanced way to think about miracles. Okay, one more thing, and then we'll take some, some questions. We've talked about Elisha's ministry, proclaiming messages and performing miracles. God used him in magnificent ways, and we're going to see some, some, some more cool stuff in the coming weeks. But I told you Sunday that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Remember that? So the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. It's all one big story of, of how God plans to rescue humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. So in some way, shape or form, all the Bible, not just in the New Testament, all the Bible is about Jesus Christ because he's the culmination of God's rescue plan. He is the rescuer. He is the redeemer. So we want to read the Bible through those lenses. And I talked Sunday about types of Christ. You know, you see these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament and about prophecies that are fulfilled and about covenants that are fulfilled and all of that. And, and I, I really want you to, to learn to read the Bible in that way. I think your Old Testament... Reading will be much richer if you are looking through those lenses at God's Word. So I'm studying this passage, these two chapters, and I think, where's Jesus in this? Is there any connection here to Jesus? I mean, some of the miracles sound really familiar, right? Feeding the bread and, and the, the resurrections, it sound really familiar, but is there, there a connection here? And uh, I, I began to think through it, and, and I came to some really neat conclusions. So turn with me to Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Verse 5, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Prophet Malachi says, Behold, I'm going to send you, a, uh, send you Elijah the prophet, Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So what he's saying here is I'm going to send a prophet, and he's going to prepare the way. Okay? Now, who's this talking about? Well, let's let Jesus tell us who this is talking about. Turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. Just hang in there for a second. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. This is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John... If you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come, who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is saying that that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi about an Elijah-like prophet. Is everybody with me so far? All right. Who came after Elijah? The prophet Elijah? Elisha. Who came after John the Baptist? Jesus. Jesus is to John the Baptist what Elisha was to Elijah. There's, I believe there's a direct connection there. And there, I believe Elisha's ministry is a picture of, of the ministry, the, the miracle ministry, and the, 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 the message ministry of Jesus Christ. Just like Elisha was used by God to proclaim messages and perform miracles, Jesus had the same mission and ministry. Did Jesus proclaim messages while he was on the earth? Give me some of the messages Jesus proclaimed. What's that? Love your, love your brothers, you love yourself. What are, what's some, what are some messages that Jesus proclaimed? All hearts, mind, soul. John 3, 16, for God so loved the Lord he gives the only begotten Son. Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, the the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse, which is about end times, Scenarios. I mean, Jesus gives all these wonderful messages from the Lord. He was God on earth speaking on behalf of his Father. But he also performed miracles. He performed uh, provision miracles. He performed resurrection miracles. Jesus Christ fulfilled, I believe, the pictures that Elisha shows us in the Old Testament. It's just a neat thought that, that Jesus, in your notes, Jesus is the greater Elisha. Elisha is just a picture, a foreshadowing of what was to come. And Jesus came and did it all to perfection and came to seek and to save that which was lost. I believe there's that neat connection there. I got excited studying that for this, for this message.